Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome. My co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. Welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, but Eric, I gotta tell you, man, before we begin, I'm a little bit confused and a little bit disappointed. Okay, why why is that? Well, look, as, as you know, look, I only spend part of my time watching people punch each other in the head. I spend a lot of the rest of my time writing about and reading about and, and studying wildlife and, and nature. And so I was pretty excited this week, this weekend, when I realized that our parent company, CBS, was going to be showing a day-long documentary about superb owls. I, <laughs> I, I got seated, and apparently at the end of it, they were going to crown the most superb owl of all. And, well, suffice to say, that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> Yeah, I started to figure out where that was headed uh, mid- midway through there, and I know you enjoy that superb owl thing, which I really hadn't heard, I don't think, until you maybe dropped that for the first time a, a year or two ago. Uh, but uh, it-, it is kind of the gift that just keeps giving. It really is. You need to hang out with nature Twitter. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Do I? Do I really? Yeah. Oh, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll give you the cliff notes every week. <laughs> okay. But speaking of the superb owl or Super Bowl, as some fools like to to mispronounce it um another year another post super bowl podcast filled with me gloating the game stunk Uh, i i'd call it the may pack of super bowls but that might be an insult to may pack perhaps um neither team was impressive both offenses stunk so bad that i've decided not to recognize either team as champion uh as far as i'm concerned the eagles hold on to the belt for another year uh, so I, I, I could gloat about that, my and still champion Eagles. Uh, but no, what I'm really going to gloat about, uh, I hope you're listening, Caleb Plant, so that you know not all of my bets are losers. Uh, <laughs> a week and a half ago, I saw that one of the online sports books I use in New Jersey had Julian Edelman at 50-1 to 1 to win Super Bowl MVP. I said to myself... That's just too high. He should be about 25 to 1 or 30 to 1. That's a great number. I have to pounce on it. So I did. Uh, I now greatly regret the size of my bet. Uh, But hey, a win is a win. I turned $2 into $102 with the only Super Bowl MVP bet I placed. So take that, Caleb Plant. Nice. Yeah. My takeaway is Julian Edelman's a guy I want to go and have beers with. Uh, yeah, although I, I wonder how much beer he could consume as I assume his uh, mustache and beard soak up most <laughs> no, of the suds just, on the way down. It, he just saves it for later. There That's you go. All. And yeah. by the way, Kieran, you're a lifelong Patriots fan, so Indeed congrats so. on another parade. Indeed, so actually watching the Super Bowl is in fact compulsory here in New England. There are actually patrols around the streets to make sure you are watching <laughs> okay. the Patriots. <laughs> all right, putting all that nonsense aside, let's look ahead to other nonsense, or perhaps... The serious job ahead of us here. Look, next Saturday, February 9th, Showtime Championship Boxing returns with a rejigged main event as Javante Davis takes on Ugo Ruiz, a top, a triple header that also features lightweights Javier Fortuna and Sharif Bogaray and junior welterweight action with Mario Barrios and Richard Zamora. We'll look ahead at that card at doing a particularly deep dive into the main event shortly. But first... On Friday, Showbox, the new generation, well, that was also scheduled to be a triple header, mm. but it wound up being a double header when Oluwashan Wahab of Ghana was unable to secure a visa for his scheduled opener against Abraham Nova. So two fights instead of three, and two mild upsets. Uh, in the actual opener, Will Madeira outworked previously undefeated Thomas Matisse to secure a close but unanimous points win over eight rounds. And in the main event, 
Ronald Ellis also lost his unbeaten record, dropping a majority decision to DeAndre Ware over 10 rounds in the super middleweight division. Eric, let's take both of these fights together initially because they both had similar plot lines going Mm -hmm. in. Um, We said in advance last week that both Matisse and Ellis needed to not just win, but score statement wins. In the event, both lost. Uh, They now have combined three wins from eight showbox appearances. Mm. Is it now fair to say that we've seen enough to be able to conclude that neither Matisse nor Ellis is an elite prospect? In a word, yep. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I should say, that doesn't make this a bad showbox show, the fact that right. the two A-sides got exposed, uh, to use a word that people like to overuse. Uh, but that's part of the point of showbox. You showcase future champions, but you also do some weeding out. You figure out which guy who's 15-0 and is going places and which guy who's 15-0 and is eventually going to be a journeyman with a record of, like, 23-8. and And you'll look back a little surprised to see that he won his first 15. Um right. I'm not saying that's the exact fate that will befall Ellis and Matisse. Uh, And I also, you know, think it's uh, a little dangerous to completely lump them together uh, the way that we are here. I would say I'm more ready to write off Matisse than Ellis. Hmm. Um, But to answer the question, yes, these are not elite prospects. We've seen enough of them both now to know where the ceilings are. And frankly, the ceilings are DeAndre Ware and Ill Will Madera. Right, right. So, I mean, both fights were close, to be fair. Mm -hmm. Um, There were some real genuine swing rounds in there. Um, For the record, watching off TV, I scored them both draws. Um, You know, but all six judges, I think, were were right in the ballpark. Um, Reaching a little bit here, probably trying to find uh, trying to find the ray of light, the silver lining for both guys. Is the closeness of those fights in any way mitigating, um, you know, given that with a slight difference in a round here or there, they might easily have avoided defeat? Or are we still like focusing on the fact that even if they'd won those fights, gotten the decisions, the elite question is is still kind of hanging there? Well, I guess maybe if Ware or Madeira goes on to win a title, we'll look back on the closeness mm. as a mm. mitigating factor. Uh, but yeah, for now, I don't see it. Um, I think what we have here is four fighters all around the same level, and mm-hmm. that level doesn't appear to be future star. Uh, like you, I had the where Ellis fight a draw. Uh, although, if I was going to lean one way or the other when it was over, I was leaning toward where, feeling mm. like he pressed the action and landed the more eye-catching punches and felt a little more like the winner. Uh, meanwhile, I had Madeira edging Matisse five rounds to three, but it felt to me like he definitely won. I, I would probably lean more toward the one judge's 78-74 scorecard over your draw scorecard. Mm-hmm. No, no offense, of course. Um, so, yeah, change one round here or there, and maybe these guys both escape with draws and are still unbeaten. Uh, but I actually think all six judges' final scorecards were really strong. Let's let's give yep. a rare shout-out to the judges. Uh, and, and so, in the end, I think the results were fair. Um, and especially for Matisse, who got a bit of a gift against Sora Hamazarian in their first fight. I, I don't think playing the change one round and he's still under right. the game is really worth playing right. for him. Right. Um, staying with the sort of upset prospects for a little bit. Um, you know, Barry Tompkins noted during the main event, he says, look, Ellis clearly has some sizzle, but he questioned whether there was also steak. Yeah. Um, and you could make a similar observation about Matisse. Look, both guys clearly have talent, but it feels as if something is is missing. Um, can you put your finger on just what that is? Do you think either guy has what it takes to correct their flaws and step up a level? Or 
to get back to our favorite Denny Green analogy, <laughs> you know, are they what we what we think they are? Well, I should say that since I went pescatarian, I'm not really qualified as an expert on sizzle or steak anymore. <laughs> um, but I made what I think amounts to a similar observation to Barry's in my notes. Uh, two rounds into Madeira Matisse, I jotted down tortoise versus hare. Uh, mm-hmm. Matisse was the hare. He was more athletic, a little faster, moving around, doing more things. But Madeira was just putting his head down and grinding away. So I think that's pretty much akin to saying Matisse had the sizzle, Madeira had the steak. Yeah. So yeah, what's missing with these guys? Um, sitting down on their punches, really trying to do damage. I think that's lacking. You know, uh, you you look at Ellis and Matisse; they can box and move fairly well, but. Can they really rise above their opponents when it's time to fight? Yeah. That, that's what yeah. I'm not seeing. Uh, I mean, Ellis's movement was effective in its own way. It was clearly limiting Ware's punch output, but there just wasn't enough offense from Ellis to go with it. Um, I, I would say I don't really see Matisse going up a level, whereas Ellis, maybe if his hands could ever get healthy, he could be better than this, but that's certainly a big if at this point. Yeah, it's it was interesting. I was making notes myself about Ellis that, that Raul Marquez then articulated that Ellis was awfully herky-jerky, wasn't he? He was using yep. up. It's like, dude, just just calm down. Be compact and don't don't be overreaching. You're, you're, you're ruining the effect of your punches there. And, and Matisse, he struck me as one of those guys. And, and it looks, it's looked like this in his previous showbox appearances, too. He's a little bit too in love with his hand speed and his ability to counter and... And, you know, you can he could certainly get outworked. You almost want to see Matisse like fighting 10 rounders because it takes him that long to get to get going. Um, but obviously, the kind of guys he's going to fight in 10 rounders aren't going to you know necessarily let him come back over the second half of fights. Right. But um, so, OK, we've been talking a lot about the losers here. Let's just give the winners some credit here. Um, uh, might have called this the, both these guys a little bit wrong, actually. Um, in our preview, I, I identified Will Madera as being sometimes an overly cautious counterpuncher. And I think we both expected DeAndre Ware to most likely kind of put his head down, bull forward, and just put constant pressure on Ellis. But in the event, Madera came out firing, at least over the first part of the fight against Matisse. And Ware was altogether more measured against Ellis than, than I expected. And some of that, I think, as you mentioned, is due to Ellis's movement. But it looks like he, he, he had a plan in his, in his mind. So did either of the guys who actually won the fight surprise or impress you? Yeah, Madera did. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think Ware was more measured because, you know, as, as I noted and, and you just echoed, Ellis's movement forced him to be more measured. But Madera, I, I wasn't expecting that. He, he came out all offense and pressure. I'm not quite going to say he was a mini Joe Frazier or anything ridiculous right. like that, but I was impressed by the pressure he applied, how he timed Matisse's jab, uh, and also by Madera's own jab. For a pressure fighter, he jabbed his way in really effectively at times. He did slow down after the first three rounds, so that's something to watch for next mm-hmm. time with Madera. Uh, but I would say his performance of the four fighters was the most unexpected. Yeah, I think what what for me was laudable with both the guys who won was they looked like they were the ones who came in with a plan, mm-hmm. right? That they they didn't just come as underdogs. They actually came to win, uh, and, and they came with a plan to do it. And I almost felt a little bit like the A-side sort of expected to win and didn't necessarily have a very good plan or even a very good reaction. Um, by the time they did respond, it was a bit late. And as a result, as we noted... Ellis is now 1-1-2 one, one and two on Showbox. Matisse is 2-1-1. One and one, And as you noted, at least one of those wins 
uh, for Matisse is a little suspect. Yeah. Uh, I mean, while uh, Ware and Madeira have come on and done what was asked of them. So, you know, they not only tested the prospects, but they went out there and beat them. So how interested are you in seeing any of these four again, do you think? I'll tell you who I definitely want to see again is Matisse's trainer. Because maybe the highlight of the night was in the corner before round eight when he told Matisse it was round six and Matisse oh, yeah. corrected him and he was unfazed and just said, whatever the bleep round it is and plowed ahead. <laughs> I want to see that guy again. Um, as for the fighters, Ellis wants a rematch with Ware. I'd be fine with that. They're obviously competitively matched, but it's not must see. Um, nice. To give a relatively quick answer, I, I'd say... I'm interested in both winners and in Ellis getting another chance on Showbox. The one who I think has maybe used up his chances is Thomas Matisse. You know, maybe Matisse could be a Showbox B-side now. You know, if, if I'm playing yeah. the part of Gordon Hall for a day, yeah. that's about the most I'm willing to give Matisse at this point. Yeah, that was the exact thought that I had is that if these guys, you know, uh, Ellis and Matisse, there are only so many TV slots to be had, right. and there are a lot of young guys coming up who would who would love to have those opportunities, and they've got to work their way back, those guys, to getting TV shots, and maybe it is, next time we see them, it is as the B-side, and uh, both uh, Ware and Madeira, I, I, do I feel compelled to watch them? No, but they came in and they did a job, and they deserve another opportunity. Um, yeah. They might even come back as the B-side again themselves, despite these wins, right. but still, they, they certainly deserve that, that opportunity. Um, and so finally, you touched on this already. Uh, let's talk finally a little bit about Ronald Ellis. We talked in the preview about his right hand, to breaking it twice and having surgery on it twice. He hurt it again. Um, it clearly affected him down the stretch, even though he said he didn't think it hurt him that badly. It's happened again. Realistically, does this now start to cast doubt on the viability of the rest of his career? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, In combination with the fact that Ellis just doesn't have the look of an elite prospect, the fact that these hand problems keep recurring, I think casting doubt, I I think that's a a fair term for it. Um, Some people are just injury prone. Uh, Some people are more Samuel L. Jackson than Bruce Willis. Uh, Sorry, I I watched Unbreakable again recently. So that's my reference point for people who are injury prone. Um, I, I guess Ellis can draw some optimism from the case of Floyd Mayweather, who had recurring hand problems and then mostly got over them uh, in part through some new wrapping techniques. But more often than not, once your hands become a problem, they stay a problem. Uh, Ronald Ellis turns 30 later this year. I'm not overly confident that this is going to get any better. I cannot believe that you pay so much attention to spying on my notes that you even see that I put something like, it's a situation like Floyd Mayweather, who had hand troubles early in his career, switched to Rafael Garcia and his cut man and hand wrappers. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you had Samuel L. Jackson in your notes. Which would have <laughs> that would have really been, been really bizarre. That yes. would have been, yeah. No, I, I look, I agree with you. And it, it's, I, okay, so it's not like a guy who keeps getting knocked out and getting concussions. It's, it's if he wants to mess up his hand repeatedly for the rest of his career, he, he, he can do. He'll suffer for it later, but that's a choice he can make. But, but yeah, you've got to figure when your job is to smack someone in the skull really hard with your right hand and doing that breaks your right hand all the time that you're at an inherent professional disadvantage. And it isn't fair, but life isn't fair. And how many people around the world look wistfully back on the great athletic careers they would have had had they not injured their knee or their elbow right. or, or whatever it's 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 really unfortunate it's the way of things but it looks like it's just going to be a permanent problem for Ronald Ellis yeah okay 
let's uh, let's move along to the main event of this podcast. Uh, the the Showbox recap was the co-feature, uh, and we'll have some news from around the boxing world as our walkout bout. Uh, but it's main event time. Time to preview this Saturday's Showtime Championship Boxing card, February 9th, starting at 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific, live from the artist formerly known as the Home Depot Center and the StubHub Center, now known as Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California. We have a triple header of action in the 130-pound, 135-pound, and 140-pound divisions. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the show the two undercard bouts. We'll talk about them in a bit. Barrios versus Zamora and Fortuna versus... Uh, I always struggle with this pronunciation. You said uh, Bo- Bogare was that I how you did so. it? Okay, I I'm gonna, so. we'll try and be consistent, even if we, if whether we're right or wrong, at least we'll just have the one pronunciation. Yes, yes, <laughs> and then then we'll hear Morrow call it as Bogier right. or something. <laughs> yeah, um, but we will focus most of our attention uh, in this uh, preview segment on the featured bout of the evening: unbeaten super featherweight titleist Gervonta Tank Davis taking on short notice substitute Hugo Ruiz. And this was not supposed to be the main event of this card until 10 days before the fight, Davis was preparing to face Abner Morris, but Morris suffered an elbow injury in training, had to pull out, and in comes Ruiz, who just scored a win on the Pacquiao-Broner undercard, meaning he's about to fight for the second time in three weeks. What, what is this, the New York boxing club <laughs> scene in 1941? Uh, it, and it's not like he scored a first-round knockout and is coming right back. Ruiz fought 10 rounds, and now he's right back in action. Uh, for Davis, the adjustment from Morris to Ruiz includes going from a five foot four and a half inch opponent to one who's five foot nine and going from a big fight against the most highly regarded opponent of his career to a less marketable fight. So Kieran, with this short notice change, who do you think has the trickier challenge here? Is it Davis trying to avoid a letdown and switching to a different style opponent or Ruiz fighting on such a quick turnaround against a Southpaw in Davis uh, while also moving up to a new, new career high weight? Well, it's a little from column A and a little from column B, isn't it? And that Ruiz, you know, like you said, like Abner Mares, he's moving up in weight. When we saw him yesterday or whenever it was, he was last in the ring. Um, it was he was a featherweight, but, you know, he's fought primarily at Bantam and Super Bantam. But for Ruiz, there's really only upside here. He, he's not a huge name. He doesn't have a tremendous amount to lose. He has a second good paycheck in as many months and an opportunity here to launch himself into much bigger paydays and to position himself already for upset of the year. Um, in contrast, there's much less upside for for Davis. Um, you know, Ruiz, here's one interesting thing that I think works in Ruiz's favor. He doesn't have to unlearn anything. Right. Whereas Davis has spent weeks focusing on how to beat Abner Mares, And now he has to throw all that out and face off, as you mentioned, against a quite different type of foe. And it's tricky for Davis also in that he is expected, I think it's fair to say, to defeat Ruiz more comfortably even than he was expected to beat Mares. Um, if he blows him out, it won't be that statement victory that he was hoping to get um, had he beaten Mares. Um, it will be just what he's expected to do. And if he struggles at all, then he'll be criticized for it. Um, so strictly in terms of the night... Ruiz is the guy whose challenge is greater, whose path to success is obviously more difficult, who has the real mountain to climb. Davis' situation, uh, you know, is a bit more clouded than it was a couple of weeks ago because he finds himself with less of an opportunity. And there have been questions about his motivation at times. It'd be understandable if he feels like less motivated for this fight. So basically, out of context, 
on the night, the greater challenge is for Ruiz because he's a massive underdog. He's the smaller guy. He's probably not the most skilled guy. But in terms of adaptation, motivation, and expectation, the challenge here in many respects is for Javante Davis. Yeah, I like that analysis, that way of, of separating it. Uh, let's not forget that Tank Davis hasn't fought in 10 months, uh, so that's one more minor challenge he's facing. Uh, the southpaw factor, I should note, probably isn't a big deal for Ruiz. He's faced lefties in two of his last four fights, and before he himself needed a late sub uh, in Alberto Guevara on January right. 19th, he was preparing to face a southpaw, uh, Jack Tapora. Um, but as you said, I think the challenge Ruiz is facing here is somewhat mitigated by expectations in that there are none. Um, you know, he, he's the smaller guy in the late sub and the clear underdog. So, yeah, in a way, it's Davis who faces the more worrying challenge that, you know, a letdown is absolutely on the table after he was so clearly keyed up to fight yeah. Mares. Um So let's dr- drill down a little on Davis. Uh, he only fought once in 2018, uh, a third round stoppage over Jesus Cuellar the previous year. He fought three times and had real highs and lows. The high, winning his first title by blowing out Jose Pedraza, who would later give Vasily Lobachenko a tough fight. The low, failing to make weight for a high-profile bout on the Mayweather-McGregor undercard and getting stripped of his title, and then looking unimpressive in beating Francisco Fonseca. We spoke to Davis in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and here's what he said about that stumble and the growth he needs to make. A professional do professional things, you know, and um, that's why I'm trying to stay. I'm staying focused, you know, staying level-headed so I won't make them mistakes again. You know, I have a bright future, and only only I can mess it up, you know. So it's basically about, you know, Javante versus Javante, mm. you know. So um, I'm trying to stay focused, trying to dedicate my life into the sport of boxing and make sure, I, you know, I do great in this sport. So he's only 24. He's the youngest American belt holder right now. He has time to figure it out. But what do you make of this Gervonta versus Gervonta matchup? <laughs> uh, is he really his own toughest foe, would you say, Kieran? Well, so far, he arguably has been. Um, but, you know, in that in that clip, when he talked to us, and, and as we discussed with Steve Farhood last week, uh, he seems really genuine in, in his desire to turn a corner and move ahead. Uh, and we'll see... You know, we'll see how true that is. But I also think part of the reason that he's also been his toughest opponent, arguably, to date, um, and is likely to continue to be the case on Saturday, however much he prepares, is that also for all his accomplishments, for the fact that he's still, as you mentioned, young and relatively untested, um, Morris would have presented him with his, in theory, with his toughest professional challenge to date. Um, uh, there are actually plenty of good opponents for Javante Davis who are tougher for him than Javante Davis. Yeah. Um, and frankly, he needs to, at this stage of his career, he needs to be finding ways to fight them. Um, unfortunately, some of them are difficult to make. Actually, quite a few of them are difficult to make because of boxing politics and the way that the sport is siloing a bit. Um, he and Tevin Farmer have a great social media call-out routine going, uh, and that's great. Uh, it would be a good like Baltimore-Philly East Coast showdown, but that's hard to make. Um, Miguel Burchelt and Francisco Vargas are renewing their hostilities in March, and you'd love to see Davis against either of those guys, but again, hard to make. Alberto Machado would be a tremendous test, but again, hard to make. Uh, you know, maybe something like a Jason Sosa fight is makeable, but even that feels like it's a level lower than the guys Davis should be facing with with his talent. Um, 
But if and when he does get a chance to go up against that caliber of opposition, he is going to need this Javante versus Javante matchup to be resolved. And maybe we're making too much of it, right? Because in the absence of him being in the ring, as you mentioned last year, that's the storyline that we have to work on. And maybe we should, you know, take him at his word and say, no, nah, it's good. Like I was a kid, I made some mistakes and now I'm focused and, and we move on. Um, but he is going to need to have both Javante Davis's on side and fully focused when and if he does make that step up against those kind of names that we just talked about. Yeah, I, I agree with that analysis that basically it's, you know, it's Javante versus Javante for now. Uh, hopefully he'll step up to the kind of opponent where it won't be Javante versus Javante <laughs> right. anymore. I guess it takes some self-awareness just to recognize that you are your own toughest opponent, yeah. that you've been tripping yourself up to some degree. Although I don't know I, how I feel about the double use of first person. Like, if you, <laughs> if you said... Every time I podcast, I have to give my best performance. It's Kieran versus Kieran out there. I would think you were the world's biggest douchebag. Uh, I guess uh, pro athletes can get away with it a little better than, <laughs> than normal people. But in any case, um, yeah, I, I, he's in a really interesting division with a lot of good talent. Uh, Mares was going to be something of a test, I think. Ruiz, I'm not as sure. We'll see. Uh, one way or another, I would like 2019 to be the year when Gervonta gets tested by someone other than himself. Um, so about that guy who may or may not test Davis on Saturday night, Ruiz, he's seen it all. He's held belts at 118 and 122 pounds. He's been in fight of the year contenders. He started his career with his first 11 wins, all being first round knockouts. Uh, he's fought the likes of Koki Kameda and Hozumi Hasegawa. He's usually an exciting fighter, uh, but he wasn't that exciting on January 19th uh, against that late sub opponent, Alberto Guevara. What do you think the potential is for fireworks uh, against Davis? So I honestly don't know. I think that part of the reason why that fight that you just mentioned wasn't tremendously exciting was I think Alberto Guevara was happy to be there, yeah. um, happy to get in the rounds, happy to pick up the unexpected paycheck. Um, you know, we both thought that, that Jack Depora would have made for a much more exciting contest. Um, and it does take two to tango. So, um, so I think the question there is, will Ruiz, who is himself now, as you mentioned, a late replacement, adopt the same mindset as his own late replacement, mm. uh, Guevara? And, and I rather suspect not. Um, as you mentioned, look, he's been around the block. Um, and while expectations and, and demands of him in this fight are low, he, he does have a reputation of sorts. He, he's, you know, he's, he's a, a decent caliber of fighter. He's got a record of accomplishment. And I don't think he'll view himself solely as an opponent. So the question to me for the fireworks question is I think a lot depends on how he does view himself. Um, so if he comes in not expecting to win but decided to go hell for leather in the hope that if he can't pull the upset, he can at least be as exciting as possible and go down swinging. Then, yeah, maybe we'll see some real fireworks. But if he comes in thinking, you know what, I've got a chance here. Um, he's not. He wasn't expecting me. He wasn't expecting my style of fight. I can go in and win this. Then the smart thing for him to do is to use that height and to use his range and to circle and jab and try to stay out of the way of the bigger, stronger guy's power. Um, that means that we probably won't have fireworks or puts the onus for them onto Davis. And we do know that he's capable of them. And I suspect that's probably the kind of thing that Ruiz would do. Um, in which case, I think perhaps the potential is not so much for fireworks as it is for unidirectional cannon fire coming from the direction mm. of Davis to try and, you know, uh, uh, make this an, an exciting statement win. Mm. 
All right. Well, as long as we're talking about the potential for entertainment and fireworks, we have to talk about the venue. Uh, as noted earlier, the arena has gone through more name changes than P. Diddy. It was Home Depot <laughs> Center. It was StubHub Center. Now it's Dignity Health Sports Park. Whatever the name it has hosted numerous great fights, perhaps most notably the 2008 fight of the year, the third bout between Israel Vasquez and Rafael Marquez. Time and again, for whatever reason, fights that looked so-so on paper turned out to be good at this venue, and fights that looked good on paper turned out to be classics. Sadly, I've never been to a fight card there, but you've mm. been to quite a few. So mm. what is your all-time number one most memorable night of StubHub magic? So I didn't – I wasn't ringside for any of the Vasquez Marquez ones or for Matisse Molina or I think the first Rio Salvarado one was there as well, I think. Sounds and I, right, yeah. I wasn't there for that. I was there for the other two, which weren't quite as – which weren't as good. Um, so I think the elite of the elite of that venue were ones that I've missed, but I, I have been fortunate to be at a couple of them. Um the last one that I was at was certainly not my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. That 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 kind of ruined the reputation a little bit of of the venue. Uh, Superfly Two was great. Um, oh, right. Really yeah. good fight between uh, Estrada and Quadras as a co-main, and a monstrous appearance from Noya Inoue, and uh, that was when Chocolatito splattered, got splattered by Strisaket. So that was an eventful night. Um, Francisco Vargas and Orlando Salido in 2016. Mm, that yes. was a fight. Yes. Um, but actually, it's funny enough, I had to think about this for a little bit, and I realized the ones for which I was ringside um you know, that the were most memorable weren't necessarily actually memorable for the fights themselves, despite the, the, the venue's reputation. So I think when it was still called Home Depot Center, actually next door in the soccer pitch, uh, I was there for Oscar De La Hoya's last win against Steve Forbes. Ah, so that right. was notable for that. Number two on my list of three, and this is very nearly number one simply because of the well-established and publicly known feelings that I have for <laughs> the fighter involved, was Miguel Cotto's final win against the relentless human rumba Yoshihiro Kamagai that was actually kind of a fun one-sided bout just simply because of how relentless Kamagai was and because it was a great atmosphere and, and because it turned out to be Cotto's last win. But actually for me, my number one night there was Gennady Golovkin, Marco Antonio Rubio. Not mm -hmm. because it was a great fight, because it wasn't. It was a typical peak Golovkin blowout. But the atmosphere that night was fantastic. Even though he was fighting a Mexican, and even though most of the crowd appeared to be Mexican, Triple G was the one that the crowd was cheering for. It was the first time that I saw a venue full of Mexicans for Triple G hats. <laughs> right. um, this really felt like the night that, that all that determined effort to brand Gennady as being Mexican-style paid off. And, and for me, that was the night that Gennady Golovkin became a star. And... Uh, that will always lodge in my memory. Uh, um, it wasn't the great, you know, slobber knocker that that, that venue is famous for. Um, but for me, that that was the real event that sticks out from, from the times that I was there. Okay. Well, we have uh, three fights on the card that can potentially provide that first classic bout in the history of Dignity Health Sports Park uh, and the latest <laughs> classic bout in the history of the venue under whatever name you want to give it. So let, let's move on to the undercard. Uh, first... Lightweights, uh, Javier Fortuna versus uh, Sharif Bogare. Is that what we said? Sure. I, I've already forgotten. I'm calling him Sharif. Uh, yes. So Fortuna is 29. Sharif is 30. Both were once highly touted prospects. Both remain contenders. But they've taken different paths in the last few years to get here. Uh, Fortuna has been testing himself. He took on a top lightweight last year in Robert Easter. 
and suffered a hard luck split decision loss. Whereas Sharif, uh, since his only loss against Tricky Richard Abril in 2013, has fought one journeyman after another for the last five years. So they got here different ways, but now they're stepping into the ring against each other. And we often talk about a fight being must win for one guy or the other. But is this a rare case of a fight that has a make or break feel for both fighters? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, they're in different, slightly different positions, aren't they, for, for reasons that you sort of touched on. I mean, Fortuna, if he hasn't quite reached the expectations that, that he had initially, he still had a pretty decent career. And, and like you said, I think he did a lot better against Easter than many of us expected him to. Um, you know, and I think you could even argue that he, he deserved that decision. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately for him, his attempt to rebound from that went south when he fell out of the ring um, in, in his next fight and, and injured his ankle. Um but the thing is, at least as you've mentioned, he's been taking on good opposition. Um, and I think that Easter performance probably like bought him extra goodwill a little bit. Uh, but even so, you know, if, if he wins on, on Saturday, then then OK, he's sort of back on track again. But a loss against a guy like Bogare would be, a, a, I don't want to say a career killer, but it would really, really mess things up for him in terms of being a major contender. Uh, it, it would really shove him into into stepping stone state um he'd have to go right to the back of the line but um but a good win i think i think does catapult him back into contention whereas you know burger i mean i mean he's gotten this opportunity just by sort of hanging around the corner just like saying asking if anybody needs an opponent and just waiting um if he winds up whiling away all this time waiting for an opportunity only to then blow that opportunity i mean I don't know. I think guys who are just willing to wait around and just fight whoever and, and then step up, I guess they'll always get a chance of some kind eventually. But um, like you said, at 30, if he loses, and particularly if Fortuna beats him quite easily, uh, yeah, he he's one of those guys who might get a, oh, hey, we need an opponent. What about right. that guy? He, right. Rather than someone who's automatically in the mix, I think. Right. Um, yeah, and if anyone is having trouble remembering Bogare, uh, which would be understandable since, again, he's been mostly under the radar the last five years, but he's the guy who used to come to the ring wearing a lion's head on his head. Uh, yeah, that's y- right. y- You never forget the guy with the dead lion's head on his head. Uh, so that's right. him. But uh, interesting wrinkle here is that Fortuna is a southpaw. Bogare hasn't faced a southpaw in seven years, so we'll see if that factors mm. into the fight. But on paper, this this looks like a competitive fight to me. Um, and our opening bout on this card pits undefeated junior welterweight prospect Mario Barrios, just 23 years old, out of San Antonio, against little-known Richard Zamora of Mexico, who was supposed to fight on this most recent showbox card until his opponent, Logan Yoon, fell out with an injury. This fight has a contract weight of 143 pounds, though Zamora is apparently trying to get that lowered. Fans probably haven't seen too much of Barrios yet, and they probably have never seen Zamora. He's never been on Showtime, and only two rounds of his career are available on YouTube, as best (laughs) we can tell. What do you know about these guys, Kieran, and what are you looking to learn about them on Saturday night? Um, so what I know about Barrios is basically that I like the idea of him a winning a world title and b defending it in his hometown because I really like San Antonio. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so Barrios, from what I can tell, he's a pretty interesting young up and comer. Uh, his last win against Jose Roman was was a pretty solid scalp. Um, he doesn't have that signature win yet, um, but one of the things that's encouraging that perhaps suggests that that he might be uh, a pretty decent fighter is that even as he has steadily started to increase his level of opposition 
so he's gotten himself on a stoppage streak, which is often, you know, it can work inversely often. You know, young kids, like they're knocking guys out, and then as soon as they face decent opposition, they don't. He's got six KOs in his last six fights, and perhaps not coincidentally, during that same spell, he's been training with Virgil Hunter. Um, here's an interesting thing about him. Uh, he's 5'11", which is tall for a junior welterweight, but freakishly long for a 122-pounder, which is where he started out. But despite his length, he's actually pretty good as an infighter because... Um, up until the time he was around 17 or 18, he was around 5'6", five, 5'7", five, which, by the way, is the perfect height for a human being, um, <laughs> before suddenly shooting up. And, and being shorter, he'd learned to fight in, uh, inside, and, and he's sort of a, supposedly maintained those skills even as he's gotten taller. As for Zamora, as you said, there's very little available about him. I know about as much of, about him, apparently, as the record keepers do. As apparently BoxRec has him 19-2 and two with 12 KOs. Fight Facts has him listed as 12-2-1 with 8. Um, and neither has a record of what Zamora's manager claims was his last fight, a third-round KO of Roberto Tamayo in Mexico. That's becoming a bit of a theme, actually. Right. Uh, guys having phantom fights uh, somewhere. Um, yeah, look, as you said, it's his first fight in the States. There's very little YouTube footage of him. What I want to learn about him? Basically anything. Uh, I know pretty much nothing about Richard Zamora. Uh, I'll note that my sources say uh, five foot eight and a half rounded up to five nine with shoes is actually the perfect height for a human. Uh, that's that's you know again that's what my inside sources are telling me. But um, what I, what I know about Zamora is also very limited. But I would just say that it's definitely a case of don't blink with this guy. Uh, his his two fights on YouTube are a first nice. round knockout that went his way and a first round knockout right. that went against him. The The first round knockout win over fellow prospect Cesar Soriano was impressive. Um, he, he can obviously punch with the right hand. The first round KO loss to Antonio Moran was equally brutal. So yeah, Barrios is obviously the more pedigreed guy here. Uh, as you noted, he's trained by Virgil Hunter. Big things are expected. Um, yeah, not sure what we're going to get from Zamora. I could see him either providing a scary test or getting blown out quickly. Right. Uh, so two quick notes before we get to this week's news from around the boxing world. First, we will be podcasting again on Friday after the weigh-in, quite possibly with a special guest from the Showtime family. So we're saving our predictions for all three of these fights for that Friday pod. Uh, and second, we'll note that there will be undercard fights streaming on Showtime's YouTube and Facebook pages on Saturday, starting two hours before the main broadcast. So that means 5 o'clock California time and 8 o'clock on the East Coast. Two fights, Juan Geraldez versus Eddie Ramirez, and a very interesting crossroads fight between Erickson Lubin and Ishay Smith will be available on that stream. All right. Uh, it is news roundup time, and there is plenty to get to here this week. Uh, we begin with Saturday night uh, on ESPN+. Plus. Sergei Kovalev, whom some idiot analyst described as D.U.N. Dunn after his last loss to Elodir Alvarez last summer, uh, rebounding, gaining revenge with a unanimous decision victory over Alvarez in Arlington, Texas. Scores were 116-112 twice and 120-108. So... Are those idiot reports of Kovalev's career's death greatly exaggerated, Eric? Yeah, if, if anyone is uh, D-U-N done after what we saw this weekend in Texas, it's you, Mulvaney. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, we all make some bad calls from time to time, but uh, Kovalev definitely did make you look bad on that one. Uh, we all knew that he was capable of a boxing performance like this because when he was fighting Bernard Hopkins and we expected Kovalev to brawl, he surprised us and spent most of the 12 rounds outboxing Bernard. At the same time, this isn't his usual MO, and it was impressive. 
And he wouldn't be the first fighter to reinvent his style a bit as the years passed and his skill set changed, you know, from Hopkins himself to Marco Antonio Barrera to Manny Pacquiao. There's a storied history of great fighters evolving from primarily a puncher to more of a boxer. Uh, And maybe Kovalev can still end up considered a great fighter. Let's not forget... He was one questionable round on a scorecard away from winning the first Andre Ward fight. And if you change that loss to a win, Kovalev is almost a lock for Canastota. So bottom line, yeah, he he has something left, uh, although it didn't hurt his cause that Alvarez fought a very uninspired fight. He never took risks, never opened up. Alvarez was as disappointing to me as Kovalev was impressive. Is that how you saw it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You 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 brought up the Bernard Hopkins fight, and in many respects, that was kind of like the dividing line, really, with Kovalev. Like that was peak Kovalev, where against Hopkins, where he he showed all that he could be, and then it felt like. And the word from around him afterwards was, was this is what happened, is then he started to read all his press clippings after mm-hmm. he did that. And that was when, you know, he was still winning. He was still scoring good stoppage wins. But that's when the training, like he really focused for that Hopkins fight. You remember he had, he had his kid while he was preparing for the Hopkins fight. And he right. used the fact that he couldn't spend time with his baby boy as, as, as motivation. And and then he just kind of seemed to lose that. Uh you know, he had that classic kind of, uh, was it a Hagler quote about it's 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 hard to get up at 5 a.m. when you're wearing silk pajamas. Right, right. Um, he started to fall. He started to not want to be told what to do. He started to run his own training camps a little bit. And it started, there was always an excuse. He was going off the rails a little bit outside uh, of the ring. Um, what was interesting to me about the other night was how intently he appeared to be paying attention to Buddy McGurr, how he had clearly said, OK, I'm going to put myself in your hands and I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to let you be the boss. And it's the first time we've seen that, right. I think, from Kovalev for a number of years. And so what to me will be interesting will be to see whether he sticks with that. Um, the other thing that was interesting was it wasn't necessarily that he had prepared better so that he had better stamina. He was still worried about his stamina. He just fought in a way to try to preserve that stamina. Right. And I guess the next stage would be to see if he gets to a point where he's actually confident in it. Um, we'll see. I mean, and of course he has other issues to deal with, uh, including uh, a, a fight against the California legal system. Right. Um, and we'll see what happens there. But, um, but yeah, it was... It was a a good measured performance, a reminder of the fact that for all he got his attention for his powerful knockouts, he has been when he needed to be a pretty good boxer. Yeah. Well, well, you mentioned testing stamina, uh, which uh, sets me up for (laughs) a little side conversation that I want to have here. I have a little bone to pick here uh, with ESPN and everyone involved in planning out this card. Uh, So uh, please, uh, you know, allow me to go on a, a rant here. I'll try to keep it brief, but. You're paying good money for a world-class main event, uh, you know, ESPN, the promoters and so forth. You're investing in boxing. You're trying to feature a big fight on the Saturday of Super Bowl weekend. Why are you putting your main event on after 1 a.m. on the East yeah. Coast? That's ridiculous. It's bad enough when these pay-per-view main events start around midnight or 12.15, but and this isn't just my narcolepsy and my washedness talking you can't ask people to stay up until two o'clock to hear the yep. final decision read. And I know that this was sort of tricky because it's 
part ESPN, it's part ESPN Plus. They're splitting it across uh, the the two arms. You, you can't uh, start the, the ESPN part before 10 p.m. because you have a college basketball game on first and you wanted two of these fights uh, to be on ESPN and the other two only for the Plus subscribers. So I get that it's logistically a little complicated. But why couldn't the Tiafimo Lopez fight be on ESPN Plus at 9 o'clock? Uh, and then you have Richard Comey's fight and Oscar Valdez's fight on ESPN between 10 and midnight, and then come back to ESPN Plus for Kovalev Alvarez starting by about 12.10. You know, that makes a lot more sense. We ended up with a lot of time killing from the broadcasters and, and just poor planning. So we'll see what the ratings end up being. I would have to assume they'd have been better for a main event that starts at 11 or even 12 than they end up being after 1 a.m. Yeah, look, as a, as a, a fellow traveler who finds it difficult enough to stay up for cars that begin at 10 p.m., um, I hear you. And indeed, apart from, like you said, apart from our own particular like issues, right? objectively, that makes sense. <laughs> um, you mentioned Tiafimo Lopez. Uh, he On that card, he moved to 12-0 by absolutely brutalizing Diego Magdaleno, uh, a complete beatdown over six and a bit rounds, ending with Lopez crushing him. With two left hooks, uh, how impressed were you with Lopez, and how appalled were you by Magdaleno's corner and by the referee, neither of whom seemed interested in in, in saving Magdaleno at any point? And even at the end, look, I know you like referees to give guys a chance, but that guy was counting yeah. Diego Magdaleno. I mean, even you have to think like <laughs> we gotta wave this damn thing off, right? I was absolutely thinking that. Yes, this was not a case where a count was called for and, and not a case where it should have even gotten to that point. So yes, to answer the question, very impressed and very appalled. Uh mm-hmm. Lopez continues to look like everything we thought he was, an elite prospect. Uh and uh, as I tweeted, he fights with unparalleled charisma. There's a real yeah, personality yeah, to the yeah. way he fights. But yeah, shame on Magdaleno's corner and the referee. It was obvious to everyone at the end of round six that he shouldn't be sent back out there. And he got violently knocked out for his trouble. And that's on every one of them. Yeah, yeah. Look, no, I agree. Extremely impressed with Lopez. He certainly does seem to have something about him. He's got power. He's got skill. There was legit skill in there as well, as well as, like you said, that flashiness, that charisma, that personality. Um, That said, does he need to watch some of the stuff that he's doing in terms of the personality? I don't know about you. I thought he did himself no favors, Lopez, with his celebrations afterwards. The Fortnite dancing, fine. I got Mm -hmm. no problem with the Fortnite dancing. I got no problem with the backflip. I think that's fine too. Walking up to a guy who's severely concussed Mm -hmm. and doing a home run swing over him, I think is appalling. And I, no wonder Diego's brother Jesse had a go at him, although Jesse might have been better served pulling his brother out of the fight before right. that happened. Right. But I mean, I mean, what do you think? Am I making too much of this? No, not, not at all. I'm, I'm right with you. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the thing that you just said about Jesse Magdaleno is that he should have been equally pissed at the people in his brother's corner for letting those last couple of punches land. But um, still, he, he had a right to be uh, pissed at Lopez. I thought he crossed a line of decency there. I agree completely. You want to do the flip? You want to do the Fortnite dance? Fine you cross into heel territory with that final gesture right in front of the opponent who's barely conscious. Go celebrate on the other side of the ring. Exactly. You know, fighters need to not celebrate right over top of the guy they just knocked out. It's always going to look tasteless. And uh, in this case, I think cost Lopez some of the goodwill that he earned with his performance. Completely agree. And it was interesting. You see the video, you could see Carl Moretti 
is aware that something's about to happen. Yep. <laughs> he leaps into the ring, goes running toward him to try to stop him, but he's just too late. Um, you know that Carl and probably Bob Arum will have a little word with him about that. Um, and he, you know, they embraced afterwards, the two fighters. That was good. But, um, you know, it's interesting looking at it. I realize how much in some respects Lopez now is, is like early Nassim Hamed. Incredible power, yep. incredible yep. charisma, um, legit skills. I think, you know, so far he's showing himself to be, you know, like a more compact fighter. He's not putting himself off balance and the way that the Hamed did. But also with that personality and that arrogance that is just sometimes going a little bit too far. Um, I remember Hamed did something similar to, I think it was Steve Robinson or someone who he beat early in his career, just standing over him and sneering while the guy was, was, you know, out on the canvas. Um, so yeah, let's bring that in a little bit and, uh, make the most of the other great elements, uh, Teofimo that you bring to, uh, to the ring. Um, all right. We got a couple of insidery things here uh from the uh, from the business here from the industry uh a really good coup here for matchroom boxing they have signed trisiket sorong visai and they plan to match him uh, off the bat in a rematch with juan francisco estrada probably in april on the zone that's a good signing for them eric yeah th- this is a rematch we were calling for on some podcast we used to do for some other network. Uh, it, it was one of our favorite recent fights. Uh, Srisaket is a, a top five or six pound for pounder for me. Estrada is just a few notches lower. Uh, it's it's simply a, a must-see rematch for hardcore fans. Yeah. Uh, Srisaket moves on with his career. George Groves calls time on his. British middleweight hanging up his gloves. Um, probably most noted, I think perhaps unfairly, because he had a pretty solid career, but he's most noted for a pair of losses to Carl Froch, including in front of a massive Wembley crowd. <laughs> um, absolutely massive crowd. Not a Hall of Famer, but a Hall of pretty darn gooder. Um, solid career and a very popular guy as well across the pond. Yeah, I believe that Wembley crowd was 80,000. Somebody might have mentioned that a time worth 3,000, uh, <laughs> Carl Fratch. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see if this retirement sticks, of course. That's the thing. He's yeah. only 30 years old. Uh, off the top of my head, I'd guess the success rate for boxers who retire for the first time at age 30 in terms of staying <laughs> retired, probably something like 3%. Uh, right. But if okay. indeed George Groves is out, Good for him. He had a fine career and would appear to be getting out before things can go steeply downhill for him. I, I wish him well. I hope he can indeed stay retired. Indeed. Um, the Boxing Writers Association of America announced the winners of its annual awards. And for the second year in a row, Team Lomachenko really dominating the top awards. Alexander Usyk, quite rightly the fighter of the year. Anatoly Lomachenko, his trainer, wins trainer of the year for the second year in a row. And Egis Klimas' clone army of global domination <laughs> gains him the manager of the year award again. Um, recent Showtime Boxing podcast guest, Clarissa Shields, won female fighter of the year. And there were a couple of other Showtime-related awards as well. Uh, indeed. Uh, on our first episode, I, I think it was our first episode, uh, we noted that Jarrett Hurd versus Arislandi Lara, oh. which aired on Showtime, had been named 2018 Fight of the Year by ESPN. Now it gets the same honor from the BWAA. Uh, So you and I might have had different opinions, preferred something else for Fight of the Year, but it's reached the point where, in the history books, Heard Lara is going down as the Fight of the Year for 2018. Uh, And then uh, here's an award we might have downplayed a year ago, but we're happy to play it up now. (laughs) Uh, The president of Showtime Sports, Steven Espinoza, 
uh, best known to most of the world for appearing once on the Showtime Boxing Podcast, of course. Okay. Uh, he won the Sam Taub Award for Excellence in Broadcast Journalism. So congratulations to Stephen. Very well-deserved. Uh, he was already doing an outstanding job, but then he signed the two hottest podcasting free agents in the game, and I think that's what clinched this for him. And I, we can only hope that he uses that influence now to ensure that the BWAA finally establishes the Excellence in Boxing Podcasting Award. Long overdue, yes. Long overdue, indeed. So at this stage, we deserve the Long and Meritorious Service to Boxing Podcasting Award. <laughs> that too. And, and I think you deserve the Good Guy Award. Me, not so much, but you do. <laughs> yes, of course, the last thing you should do for a Good Guy Award is start campaigning to be the good right. guy. No. Right. So anyway. I'm campaigning for you. Wait, am I supposed to go, no, Eric, you totally deserve the Good Guy Award. You're supposed to, but uh, you, you didn't do it in the moment. It's a little too And I have now. just lost yeah. the Good Guy Award as yeah. a consequence. Oh, well. Yeah, there you go. Such is life. We move on. Um, this weekend, a couple of other f- bouts to talk about in addition to the Showtime Championship boxing card that we just uh, discussed. Um, we talked earlier briefly about Alberto Machado, and he takes on Andrew Cancio, I think, on February 9th on DAZN. And the following evening... On ESPN, uh, Jose Ramirez, Eric, meeting Jose Cepeda. Yeah, not a lot to say here. Solid fights, A-side fighters who we enjoy. Uh, Ramirez tends to make entertaining fights. Machado, we know, can pop. I'm interested in both cards, but let's just say I'm not staying up until 2 a.m. for either of them. (laughs) All right, indeed. And finally, a quick mention here of one date confirmed and a couple of bouts coming close to the conclusion. Uh, Bud Crawford, Amir Khan, now set for April 20th in Madison Square Garden. Um, And there was a time, and we discussed this uh, previously, uh, not so very long ago, the future of New York City boxing looked a little uncertain, but... Boy, the New York fight sure keep coming. Um, it looks as if Anthony Joshua will face Jarrell Big Baby Miller, quite possibly also at the Garden in June. And uh, perhaps, in fact, of certainly greater import to us, the uh, Tyson Fury-Deontay Wilder rematch gets closer and closer. And that is seemingly set for the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And it appears that all is yet to be determined is the date, which is seemingly either April 27th or May 18th. And we will obviously bring you confirmation one way or the other ones we have it. Once we know about it, you will know about it, unless you know about it on Twitter before we know about it. (laughs) There you go. All right. That will do it uh, for this edition of Showtime Championship Boxing. Uh, As Eric mentioned earlier, we will be back before this Saturday's card uh, as we podcast following Friday's weigh-in in Carson, hopefully with a special Showtime guest. Until then, thank you for listening.